One of the unique responsibilities of being a pastor is being able to share the burdens of others. And so um, normally I don't speak this transparently, but I'm going to this morning. Um, This week has been extremely difficult. It's been a very heavy week. A heavy week on a variety of different levels, both personally with the loss of Kim's grandfather, who is my grandfather also, and um, with the passing of, of Gene Thornberry and the family, um, and so many other different struggles that I can't even talk about from this platform. Um, and I just want you to know, as, as church family, I'm deeply appreciative of you. Deeply appreciative because I know that there are many who pray for me on a regular basis. And there are those whom I can turn to when I need to hear counsel and advice. And when I was thinking about this message time that we would have with uh, our, you know, as a church together today, I, in my grand scheme, my plan uh, today was going to be a different sermon. We were going to start a series looking at the church and what it means to be the church and who we are as the church. And, and that series will happen. Um, but today, based upon my week and based upon uh, the intimate knowledge that I have about so many over this last week, I feel like it would be very helpful for us to talk about trials and talk about what it means to be faithful through the trials. And so I want to draw your attention to First Peter Chapter 2. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 4. I'm going to read down to verse 10. And we'll look at this topic together. Peter writes, he says, As you come to him, he's talking about Jesus, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we ask in these moments that you would speak to us clearly through Peter. And Father, that our hearts would be ready to receive your word implanted within them, that we might be changed, 
that you might give us the equipment, Lord, the training, the skills necessary to endure the trial, but not just to endure it, but to be faithful through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's obvious to say that most of the time when we are tempted to lose our trust in Jesus, how often does it happen in the trial? Right? So you're, it's not really that much of a temptation to lose your confidence in who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life when everything is great. Because when everything is great, everything is great. But it's during the hard times, it's during those difficult periods in life, those seasons, that you can begin to drift. That oftentimes you can lose the confidence that you once had in Jesus. In this letter, Peter opens it by encouraging the believers who are living in Asia Minor to the promise of an eternal inheritance. He draws their attention back to this incredible salvation that God has offered to them through Christ. And the hope that they have is rooted in the fact that they have been reborn. That they have a, they have a new life. They've been reborn through the power, he says, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so it was important for Peter to remind them of this hope. If you think back about what's actually going on with these Christians in the first century, the church in Asia Minor was experiencing sporadic kinds of persecution. Uh, the magistrates in various places within the empire were allowed to deal with Christians however they saw fit. And so some places, persecution was really bad, and in other places, it wasn't bad. But, but there was always this, this tension that Christian, Christians were having to deal with. Imagine what it must have felt like to live in Asia Minor at the time, if you were a Christian. Now, regardless of whether or not your city was one that was persecuting Christians, you would always be living under this, this anxiousness, this wondering of whether or not at some point this magistrate or the person in charge of this city was going to turn on the Christians and, and do some terrible things to your family, your people. Most of these people in these, in these churches in Asia Minor, they, they'd never left their city, right? They, they never even had left the, the region. They were people from these locations, and so leaving really wasn't an option for them. And so as they began to live life, they're doing so under this enormous amount of pressure and stress. And their churches were small communities. They, they met together on a weekly basis or a daily basis in some places, quietly worshiping God, hoping that they wouldn't catch the attention of the authorities. And their lives are filled with this anxiety over what would happen to their family. I mean, guys, imagine if, if there was the, the, the constant threat in your life was that because your family was Christian, someone, whether it, it's a government or people, might come into your house and take you away from your family. And I know that your greatest fear wouldn't be your own death if you love your family. Your greatest fear would be what is going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my children? And for, for wives, what would be the greatest fear? Losing your husband, not having someone to take care of the family, not having someone to bring food to the children so that they could eat. And so this constant 
pressure and anxiety was upon them. It would have been very easy for them to feel insignificant. If you were part of a church like that, tucked away off in some bustling city in the Roman Empire, it would be very easy to feel as though it doesn't really matter. Everything that you're doing is insignificant. It's really not that important what you're doing. And friends, we don't, here in America, we don't experience those same kinds of pressures, do we? But it would be a mistake to think that we can't identify at some level with the pressure of life. Sometimes we can feel very irrelevant to our culture. Our culture poses all kinds of obstacles toward the Christian faith and, and, and jeers at us and laughs at us and, and, and it can sometimes feel as though we're out of place, as though maybe we really are irrelevant and we really don't matter. Maybe we're struggling with anger because we're bearing the weight of the pain of someone else and there doesn't seem to be any justice on the horizon. Maybe we're hurt because of a relationship or because your marriage is failing and you don't want to tell anybody else about it. Or maybe we just feel that, that sting of loss. We may not be experiencing the same kinds of trials that the early church endured, but every single day we're going through trials. If you're not in a trial right now, you will be soon. That's just the reality of life. That's how life works. Life in this fallen context, this fallen world, we go through difficult times, and it's through those difficult times that God begins to grow us. This is why Peter continues in his letter here in chapter 2 by talking about these things. In order to be confident, in order to be faithful Christians while going through trials, we must see Jesus as being the rock. We have to see Jesus as being the one who is reliable. We have to remember who he has made us to be so that then we respond correctly to the trial. So as we look at the text, look back at your Bible with me. Just briefly look at this text and, and figure out what Peter's doing here. Verses 4 and 5, Peter quickly makes his point. But then after that, in verses 6 down to verse 10, he, he fleshes out the reasons and then he restates his point. So that's kind of how he's organizing it. In verses 4 and 5, Peter explains that, that Jesus really is reliable. He really is reliable, that, that, that he was the one who was handpicked by God, that he is precious in value. And then he uses this metaphor, and he calls Jesus this living stone. And because of the new birth, Peter's saying that these Christians, they also now are living stones. Now, I mean, granted, you think about living stones, it's a really strange metaphor, right? It has the potential to be creepy. I mean, it's almost like something that you might see in a Harry Potter film or something. You've got a wall and people are groaning and moaning and talking. I mean, it could be weird. But, but what's he trying to get across with the metaphor? What's he saying? Is he talking about literally we're all like stones, like the Bedford stones on the outside of this building? No. What he's talking about is this grand shift of the way that God's dwelling with his people. 
So no longer is God's presence going to be within this rock building in a temple or in a tabernacle. No longer is it based upon the building itself. But now it's the presence of God is going to be dwelling within his people. His living stones building up the house of God. That's what Peter's that's what Peter's saying. I also want you to notice how Peter talks about us being built up before we jump into the text even more deeply. Notice what he says. He says that they are being built as spiritual houses. I think too many times we as Christians, we become very discouraged when we feel like we're not growing. Now, there's a flip side to that, right? Maybe you're never discouraged because you're never growing, and that doesn't really bother you. That's a problem, too. I think the better problem would be to be discouraged because you feel like you're not growing at the, at the rate that you should as a Christian. But look what he says. He says, they are being built up as a spiritual house. Sometimes we become frustrated because we don't feel mature. We make the same kinds of mistakes every single day. We do the same stupid stuff this year that we did last year. And we begin thinking, Lord, maybe he's just going to get tired of me. Maybe he's, maybe he's sick of me making this same mistake. Maybe he's up there thinking, what in the world? Come on, get it together. But he says he's building us, right? God is, is shaving off those rough edges and he's restoring us, he's testing us, he's pruning us so that we can bear more fruit. It's not as though, as though Peter said that we have been built into a spiritual house. Do you notice that? It's not past tense, as though when you came to faith, when you were converted, when you followed Christ, when he, when he turned your heart from dead to, to alive, that all of a sudden there, you've been built. Boom. You're good to go. No. He says you're being built. You're being built. This is the process of sanctification. You're continually being made new and refreshed and things are being stripped away and, and pieces are being removed and limbs are being cut off and, and all of it is so that you will be built up into a living stone to be part of a living house for God. But then Peter quickly drops this metaphor. He turns then and calls them a holy priesthood. Obviously connecting the church with the pattern that was before them in the people of Israel. In the ancient world, a priest was someone who was viewed as being very, very important for the community. Now, maybe we have different opinions of priests now. But this, in the ancient world, priests were very, very significant, not just for the religious life, but for the life of the entire community. They were significant people. And Peter's saying that these people, these people, remember, the ones who feel like they're trapped in their homes, the ones who are nervous because they feel like they're, they're losing control in their lives, they're worried about whether or not their children are going to be stolen away or they're going to be taken off and thrown into the arena. These people, he says, they are priests to God. They are significant now, can you imagine if you really believed that? If you're a follower of Christ, if you really believed that you were a priest of God. See, our identity is wrapped up in this idea of priesthood. God's original purpose for us in the Garden of Eden was that we would be royal priests. 
rulers, royal rulers who would guide the created order in the worship of God. That was why we were made. Would it change the the way that you view your Christian walk if you really considered yourself to be a priest of a holy God? I mean, you're not just someone who who happens to go to church on Sundays, who uh, who believes certain things about the scriptures, who believes certain things about Jesus. You're not simply a person who tries to to always do the morally right thing, right? You're not just the person who everybody says, "Wow, if you could be more like so and so." you know, then your life would be better. Everything's going to pan out for you if you just kind of act more like this person. You know, you're a royal priest of the divine creator of the universe. You are the one who talks to God. You are the one who knows the secrets of the divine. You are the one who has been given the privilege of sharing those secrets with a world that doesn't know them. What an amazing calling to be a priest. Now look back at verse 5. Peter describes our purpose here. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That's what priests are to do. Paul, in his Romans, book of Romans, he talks about living sacrifices in chapter 12. But I think, I think Peter is talking about something very similar as well. In Hebrews chapter 13 The author says this, that through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Our spiritual sacrifice is the declaration of our mouth about who God is, and it's also the declaration of our lives in the way that we model his love. So in order to be a confident and faithful Christian while going through the trials, you have to see Jesus as being reliable. You have to understand who you are in relationship to this Jesus so that then you can respond with faithfulness. So let's look at the first truth I want you to take home with you today. We must see Jesus as a reliable object for our faith. We have to see Jesus as a reliable object for our faith. Look back with me at the, at the text. He says, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the first thing that we read in this passage about Jesus is what? He's the living stone. Now notice the contrast Rejected by people, but chosen by God. So people reject him, but God has chosen him. So friends, all of us are ignorant of something. Some of us more than others. But all of us are ignorant of something. I'm ignorant ignorant of math. 
I don't know if any of you guys are like that, but like literally I can add and subtract and uh, maybe do a couple more things. But algebra is way out of my league, right? And calculus, just shoot me. I don't even know. Like it's just ridiculous looking. So, but I know that some of you, that's like a gift, right? Or chemistry or some other kind of thing or engineering or geometry or whatever. I mean, all of us, we have certain sectors of our life where we're extremely knowledgeable, we're very comfortable, but then there's other places in our lives, other bases of knowledge that we're just really ignorant about. We don't know everything. We don't know everything. And Peter is contrasting the fact that humans who do not know everything about everything have rejected Jesus. He's contrasting that with the fact that God, who does know everything about everything, has selected Jesus. He also says that Jesus is precious, honored, and extremely valuable. But then Peter quotes from the book of Isaiah. And then this prophecy, leaders of the people of Israel, they, they had abandoned the covenant of God. They had walked away from the covenant that he had made with the people. And they've literally made a deal with death and abandoned their confidence in God. And then he comes to them and he says this. He says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. But they had trusted themselves to false gods. They went a different direction. And God says that he will once again lay again the foundation for the nation, but with a choice stone, with a perfect stone. And whoever stands upon that foundation, they will never be humiliated. They will never have to fear. Because Jesus is that fully reliable stone because he is the creator and the sustainer. He's the one who will restore the world. He's the one who, who, who's, he's the one who will remove the thorns. He's the one that, that calms the raging storms. He's the one that, that eliminates the horrible famines. Jesus is the one who's able to still our hearts and rescue us from sin. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you've You've never followed Christ. You've never experienced the joy of salvation. You've never come to a point where you knew that without Christ, there was no hope for you. But every single planet, every single one of us in here, we are, we are together on this. All of us have this in common. Every single one of us have turned away from God. Our sin is ever before us. Because not a single person in here has loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. And when we love something else more than we love God, God says that's idol worship. And that's sin. We honor ourselves instead of honoring the one who gives us life. And the debt of our sin, the scripture tells us, is eternal death. But God, in his incredible mercy, chose Jesus to come to this planet so that he might live the life that we should have lived but were unable to because of our nature. And he stood in our place. He took the nails for us. He became a substitute for us so that we could live. So he took on the wrath of God 
so that we might instead have the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus says, all of this is is theirs to those who will believe upon him. Jesus alone is worthy of our faith. And it's foolish to think that we can earn God's favor through our kind words or through our benevolent deeds. No matter how many good things you do in your life, they will never outweigh the bad. Do you know whose theology is is exactly that? Muslims. That is what Islam teaches. The more good that you do, it outweighs the bad in the end because good weighs more than bad. And I don't think you're Muslims. Christians, what we believe is that all of our bad outweighs anything that we do. It's kind of like water that has one small drop of food coloring in it. What happens to the water? All of it changes. Every single portion of it is tainted and colored. Friends, it's the same way with us. Our hearts are black. Our hearts are sinful. And it's not because simply we do bad things, but if we did more good things, we could clean ourselves up. It's because inside, deep inside, the heart itself is black and unchanging. It's dead. And it's only through Christ that we can have life. It's only through Christ that we can be restored. Jesus is the one who's perfect. He is the perfect stone, a sure foundation. We can trust in him. Look in verse 7. He says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Peter explains what Isaiah, his quotation is about from Psalm 118. It's a contrast. To those who believe, the stone is precious. It's valuable. It's honored to those who do not believe. The stone is a shameful thing for them because they have not believed. From a very young age, I had a really big problem with trying to find things. Now, it's not because I have bad eyesight, but uh, it's because I I don't have any observation skills, apparently. So when I was a kid, I just remember things would go missing and I would not be able to find them. Now, as an adult, it's only accented more because at one point in my life, I really thought that I was kind of like Sherlock Holmes. And I didn't wear the hat, but I did have the magnifying glass, you know. And I, I really thought that I had this kind of observation skill stuff down. Kim totally sabotaged that idea that I had. But even now, I mean, I lose my keys, I lose my, my wallet, I lose my phone. And she constantly is telling me that I should put them in one particular place. But, but what happens is, I ask, where is my keys? Where are my keys? And she says, well, where'd you put them last? I don't know. That's the point. But she says, well, you need to look for them. So I, I look for them all over the house. I'm trying to find them. But like my mom said, I used to, when I would look for things, I, I would go into my room looking for something that I'd lost. And she said that she would come by and walk by and she would see me looking, but I'm just kind of looking like this. You know, I'm not looking on the ground where everything should be if you happen to lose it, Right. But what happens is, then Kim comes behind me, and it's like, I mean, she's like this incredible finder. I mean, I don't know how she does it, but she can find anything. She's, I won't say this because she, she's not here. She's like a hound dog, but prettier, right? So she can sense where things are, and she can find it. Don't you tell her I said that. She can find anything. 
And what happens to me is just, it's humiliating. It's like, seriously, like, it really take, it takes a hit on the masculinity. You know, I feel like I should be able to locate things. And she can find them, and I can't find them. It, it's humbling, to say the least. But this is what we're talking about in this text. These builders, I mean, these were the guys that were trained to find rocks. They were the ones who knew exactly what kind of rock to choose for what kind of project. They knew exactly what to look for. They knew that this kind of rock, just shave it a little bit, it would be the perfect corner or the center stone for an archway. This kind of rock, this would be the perfect stone for this kind of a building with, with this amount of size and this many stores. They, they knew what they were looking for. And so they would search out the mountains for rocks to find the perfect stones to be used as cornerstones. And what an embarrassment to find out that the stone, that as they were walking past it, they were like... Mm, that doesn't look like a very good stone to me. I'm going to try and find a different one. They, thought, they found out that that was the perfect stone. How humbling would that be? How shameful would that be? This is aimed at the leaders of Israel who are trained to watch for the Messiah. They were the ones that understood the Scriptures. They were the ones who, who knew what they were supposed to be looking for. But when he actually arrived, they rejected him outright. Is they didn't know what they were looking for. And as a result, they stumbled and they fell. And literally, they became a scandal because they executed their own king. If we're going to have confidence in Jesus through the trials of life, we must, first of all, see Jesus as being the reliable one. God declares that he is precious and of extreme value. Secondly, we must remember our Christian identity. Look what he says there in verse 9. It's one of my favorite verses of Scripture. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in verse 5, Peter tells this early Christian community that they're being built up into a spiritual house so that they would be a holy priesthood. Then in verse 9, he fleshes it out. What he's saying is is that they're they're not people who, who disregard the cornerstone. They're different than that. They're living stones, he says. They are God's chosen priesthood. Now it's interesting, the progression that, that Peter has in this letter, earlier on, he tells them that they're like newborn babies and they ought to consume the milk of the word, right? They ought to eat it. They ought to, to take it in. They ought to receive it. But then here in this passage, it's almost then he begins to turn it. It's not as though we just live our Christian life always consuming, right? Sometimes we, because we live in a consumer society, we are consumer Christians. So we come on come to church on Sunday morning and we're expecting to consume, we're expecting to, to receive, and then we, when we don't receive what we want, what happens? Well, shoot, I think I'll go to Southeast. That makes sense. I'll go down to the church down the road. I'll go to this church or maybe I'll just listen to a preacher that I like online because it's all about us. It's all about what we want. It's all about consuming. But the more that we are following Christ, 
while we are still consuming, he says that we are then to turn and we become revealers as well. So we're not just those who are consuming, but instead now we're turning while consuming, being the people who reflect and reveal God to people who don't know him as priests. That's what he's saying. The church is the people of God. To borrow the words from Moses to describe the church, Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, you are the people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And friends, this ought to give us confidence in the trial. The confidence that you have, it's not because You pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps and you got to God. It's the very opposite of that. You didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to make God more pleased with us than Saeed or Ahmed over in the Middle East. For some strange reason, because of who God is, he's called you. He's brought you forth. As a Christian community, has chosen us to be his chosen people. He sought us out. He redeemed us by the blood of his own son. And he made us priests to our God. So, friends, if you're fearful about sharing your faith with your coworker because you fear that they're going to laugh at you or that they're going to make jokes at your expense, remember who you are, for heaven's sakes. Remember, you're a royal priest of God. How could you be embarrassed about pointing the builder to the perfect stone. They're walking by the stone every day. They need the stone. They can't do anything without the stone. This is the perfect stone. How can you be embarrassed by saying, hey, wake up, the stone's right in front of you. But friends, that's what we are to do as Christians. Remember who you are, a chosen Vessel, one whom the Lord is glad to share the secrets of his love and his gospel. This morning, as we look at our congregation, we are not that large, are we? We're not the biggest church in J-Town. We're not the biggest church in Louisville. And sometimes we could feel insignificant because of that. But just as the early Christians might have felt scattered across Asia Minor, We too are simply an outpost of the kingdom of Christ. Here we are in this location that God has chosen for us to be and we are planted here and here it is that we wage war against the principalities and the powers of this reptilian prince. We are are part of something that is glorious. We are part of something that is way bigger than Jefferson Town Baptist Church. We are living stones in 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 the building of God. We're people bought by the precious blood of Christ. And so as a result, we honor God with our lives through the trial. Look what he says again in verse 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is the duty of a priest? To offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews chapter 13. The author says, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Notice how Peter fleshes this out in verse nine. He says that you may declare the praise of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is what we were made for. Friends, I'm not the only proclaimer in the room. Every single one of us who call upon the name of Jesus that follow after Jesus Christ, we are proclaimers, whether we're preachers or not. We're proclaimers. And we proclaim the truth of who God is and what God has done, that he has taken us from this evil, dominated sin kingdom, and he's transplanted us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are told then we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into light. And either you're a good proclaimer or you're a terrible proclaimer. You say the things that are true in the relationships that you have and you speak the gospel to people because they're missing the stone and they need the stone. Or you're silent and you don't say anything for whatever reason. You're proclaiming with your life whether or not you believe the gospel is true or you're proclaiming that you don't think it's true in the choices that you make and the way that you live and the things that you do. you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, it is impossible for you to honor God with your life unless you first turn and trust in the death of Jesus Christ to wipe away your own guilt and sin. You cannot clean yourself up. You cannot make yourself better. Eventually, God will judge you. So turn to Jesus while there's time. Turn to him. Jesus is the one who's reliable. Jesus is the one who can save you. Jesus is the one who can rescue, no matter what you've done. For believers, every aspect of our lives should honor God. So even from the way that we refuse to worry about Islamic terrorism or, or the way that we respond to a negative report from the doctor or, or the way that we respond to stress and pressure in our marriage or among our kids or the way that our kids are going, whatever is going on in our life, we honor God by the way that we respond, by the way that we trust in his provision, in his protection, in his gospel. God is honored when we rest in his love. When we declare it to be true by the words and the actions that we live out in our lives. Friends, it can be very easy to lose your way in the trial. I encourage you this morning, place your faith in him who is reliable. He can carry the burdens that you have. He can shoulder whatever weight you're struggling with. Don't forget who you are. In the midst of the trial. You are the special possession of God. A royal priesthood. So be bold. Be confident. 
If we will stay faithful in these two things, no matter what circumstance, no matter what problem comes into our life, no matter what trial, we can honor God through our lives. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you would help us today. Lord, there, there are many burdens in this room. Children that are walking away from the faith and parents who are struggling to try and hold on. Families that have a marriage relationship that is broken because of pride, because of porn, because of envy or greed. We have families that are mourning loss. Lord, there are so many burdens and trials among us. But it's so easy to get lost in the trial and to forget that you give us trials for the purpose of making us faithful, shaping us and, and, and making us more like Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would give us clarity of mind this morning as we think about these words that Peter has said. That we would look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we would trust in him and see him as completely reliable. That we would constantly be reminded by one another and by your word that we are priests unto our God. Father, make us faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.